Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm your host, Chris Martin. On today's episode, Arthur Sakamoto. He's a sociologist at Texas A&M, and he writes extensively about inequality and Asian Americans. He's been a guest on the show before, and this episode is in some ways a continuation of that older episode. If you have the time, you might want to listen to that episode first. This episode does work as a standalone episode too, though, so you could just listen to this. Before we begin, I should explain the term majority-minority paradigm because that's a term we use in this episode. It refers to the paradigm in which majorities are viewed as oppressive and minorities are viewed as oppressed. Both Arthur and I have written about how this paradigm doesn't seem to be valid any longer in the U.S. because Asian Americans falsify that pattern. So, here is Arthur Sakamoto. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me on. So we're here today to talk about Asian Americans and how they're represented in sociology. For new listeners who may not know this, I'm Asian American myself, and my guest, Arthur Sakamoto, is of Asian descent, and we're talking about myths today. I thought we'd start off with Asians are too heterogeneous to be a category, since that has been coming up a lot in the last couple of years due to Jennifer Lee's work in particular and Karthik Ramachandran as well. What do you have to say about that? Yeah, the, the idea that Asians are very heterogeneous, um, is, as you said, received a lot of attention in the last couple of years. But actually, um, you know, really for the past 10, 20 years, people have also been, you know, noting that. And so uh, it's not really a new idea. It's just that you hear it quite a bit very recently. And, um, you know, it, it certainly is important and it certainly is in many ways true. There, there are, um, a lot of different countries in Asia. There's a lot of cultural heterogeneity, different religions, different languages, different countries at varying levels of economic development. Um, Asian immigrants have come under a variety of historical circumstances to the U.S., whether it's, you know, the big ones are the, you know, Korean War, the um, Vietnam War, the post-1980 uh, exodus, and, and so forth. So, yes, it is an issue that needs to be recognized, and it's uh, a characteristic of the Asian American population, which is <clears throat> disproportionately foreign-born. But but having said that, um, I, I'm a little concerned that, uh, you know, this discussion is being kind of um, motivated by a particular politicized view that is sometimes uh, really not recognizing sort of what this implies about racial and ethnic stratification in the United States. So, for example, if you read uh, a recent article by Jennifer uh, Lee and Ramakrishnan and, and uh, Janelle Wong, I mean, they, they say, as I've noted elsewhere in print, that, for example, uh, Hmongs, Hmong Americans have a higher dropout rate from high school than African Americans and Hispanics. Uh, I believe the figure they give is is like 40%. So th the problem with these sorts of calculations, and you can see these references in, in other books on Asian Americans recently, uh, the problem is the authors are sort of confusing uh, heterogene heterogeneous immigrants with racial stratification in the United States. So, for example, 
Laotians have a population with different、uh, age groups, and the older Laotian Americans immigrated from Laos in the 1980s or late 70s, and、uh, at that time there were very few high schools in Laos. So they came. They had no education.、Uh, they had families and children, but the stratification that their children experienced in the United States is a separate uh, sociological um, indicator from the educational attainment of their children、uh, from their parents. So the parents didn't have any education because Laos didn't have many high schools, but they didn't drop out of an American high school, and so we see this sort of confusing. Calculation of a high school dropout rate that's including elderly people from Laos who never went to high school in the United States, and so that gives a misleading characterization of racial and ethnic stratification in the United States. And so,、uh, when you see this kind of statistic that's repeatedly being said by not only by those authors but by others that they have such high dropout rates, you know, that's patently not true. They Hmong Americans actually have lower dropout rates than non-Hispanic whites, and to be saying that they have higher dropout rates than African Americans and Hispanics is not indicative of racial stratification of the second generation or those Asian Americans that experience the American stratification system rather than the stratification system in in Laos or Vietnam, and then brought that here. With them as their background, so yes, it's heterogeneous. But the second generation may not be as heterogeneous as the first generation, because the second generation is a group that is socialized in the U.S. and English becomes their dominant language. And the issue that I have is that they're confusing immigration with stratification in the U.S. and they frankly aren't really、uh, doing the sort of research. That we need on the second generation. I mean, I haven't done all of the work, but there's some suggestive evidence that actually variation in educational attainment among second generation Asian Americans could actually be lower than for other categories. If you factor out the immigration aspect, it's not at all clear that Asian Americans are more heterogeneous on those particular socioeconomic outcomes. That are of particular interest in talking about racial stratification in America. I mean, if you just want to talk about language or linguistic or religious background, you know that is another issue. But、uh, I guess I'm saying, you know, heterogeneous in terms of what? Part of this is that they haven't looked at other groups. If you're saying that a certain group is more heterogeneous from a scientific point of view, well, what is heterogeneity among, say, whites and among blacks? And, and Hispanics, we would like to see that kind of research. Actually, Nigerian and Ghanaian Americans, that second generation, does very well. They have very high levels of educational attainment, <clears throat> not only higher than third generation African Americans, but also higher than whites and, and possibly as high as Asians.、Uh, there's a, a variety of different of white groups. There's white immigrants from Central Asia that have higher poverty rates. There's Middle Easterners. There's Arab Americans. We have traditional groups like Hutterites and Amish. You know there is variability in、um, all of these groups, and you know I'm all for studying this. I've done it in my research, but kind of what we see recently is is people sort of exaggerating it because it, it's sort of the 
political narrative of the times. What I see going on here, I think, is partly the attempt to burst a stereotype. And the stereotype is a stereotype of Asian Americans being highly educated. And some of these authors seem to be saying, look, there is this group of Asian Americans that actually have somewhat low education levels. And you see this with income as well. And I'm actually partially sympathetic to it because I think sometimes, especially if you grow up in a place where it has a huge IT industry or really any urban area in in America, you end up meeting a lot of Asian doctors and engineers. You might truly not know that some Asians in America live below the poverty line, but I really have the same problem that you do with this data, which is that a lot of the judgments are subjective. And when you say there's a lot of variability within Asians compared to other groups, you need to have data on those groups. And one thing I haven't seen from Jennifer Lee and her co-authors is data on other groups like whites and African-Americans. Now, you mentioned that there seems to be a political narrative underneath that. Do you feel like that political narrative to some degree is justified or do you think that's not justified either? I mean, I agree with you that we definitely want to be concerned with low-income groups. And it is definitely true that there are Asians that are living in poverty and those particular ethnic groups that are often discussed uh, Cambodians and, and Hmong and Laotians um, <clears throat> in particular, I mean, they do have above average poverty rates and, and that needs to be recognized. But, you know, at, at the same time, um, you know, th- this narrative seems to be, again, driven, I agree with you, by a certain um, political kind of uh, perspective that, you know, is um, <clears throat> wanting to sort of make race the dominant factor in inequality in America today. You know, if we're going to look at poor Asians, that's excellent. But, you know, there's also 17 million white people living in poverty. There's the largest group of poor people are are non-Hispanic whites. And if you had a poverty line that's a little bit closer to the relative poverty line rather than the absolute poverty line, which is what we use, then you'd find that a majority of the poor actually are are non-Hispanic whites. And yet, if we're saying we're concerned with poor people, I mean, you rarely hear anyone talking about, well, this also extends to whites. Now, to be sure, you know, the poverty rate among non-Hispanic whites is lower. It's 9%. But when you have a large group, uh, 9% uh, turns out to be, uh, you know, tens of millions of people. So I'm you know, I, I'm sympathetic to this narrative, but I, I guess we, we shouldn't look at it um, too narrowly. That excludes uh, the largest group of poor white people. And, you know, this sort of gets into uh, another topic. But, um, you know, it is this issue of, you know, if there's white privilege or if uh, whites are dominant, then um, the political narrative is to play up poverty among Asians. But, Again, um, when you have this politicized view, it overlooks sort of um, inconvenient facts, as uh, Max Faber would say. I mean, for example, uh, you know, 80% of single-race Asians in 2010 were just five groups, uh, Chinese, uh, Indian, Filipino, uh, Korean, and, and Vietnamese are, you know, the great majority of, of Asian Americans. So it doesn't mean that the other 20% aren't important, but... Um, I mean, when you hear about, well, they're too heterogeneous to be 
a category um, compared to the other groups, apparently. You know, they don't say that, you know, most of them are from these five groups, uh, three of which have very strong, um, you know, Confucian cultural traditions. So, um, yes, it's, it's heterogeneous, but, you know, this um, concern for, I think, overemphasizing heterogeneity uh, is a politically motivated to play up the racial aspect uh, when in fact, if you look at second generation Asian Americans, the poverty rates come down. Even for these groups with initially high poverty rates, uh, the poverty rates are, um, I-, I believe, lower than the poverty rates for African Americans and for Hispanics. So we're, we're not seeing much intergenerational poverty uh, the way we've seen with African Americans who have um, lower rates of upward mobility socioeconomically and higher rates of downward mobility socioeconomically. So the poverty situation in terms of the intergenerational transmission is very different for Asians. And that's not being recognized in this dialogue that's trying to sort of use, as we've discussed before, this old kind of uh, paradigm of the majority minority view of of inequality as being driven by racial discrimination. And uh, what we see is actually, um, you know, the Asians don't really fit that model very well. Yeah, that connects to the idea of white privilege. And undoubtedly, whites do have a certain status advantage, but sometimes sociologists don't want to get into the nuances of how they don't necessarily exclusively have that advantage. And you would, if you start talking about Asian Americans, you end up having to get into those nuances. And that's why, as we talked about in our earlier episode, sometimes Asian Americans are just missing from sociology books altogether. Right. Anyway, we should probably jump to myth number two, which is Asians are economically disadvantaged because they live in areas with a high cost of living. Tell me a bit about that one. Yes, that that's an, another uh, conventional wisdom. And um <clears throat> I, I, you know, I'm happy to, to, you know, have, you know, a discussion that connects with people. But, uh, you know, as a social scientist, I, I, I think that there's uh, a, a lot of sort of social scientists and sociologists that are using the word myth too much. And so I, I, I personally prefer to use the word conventional wisdom because myth is, is suggesting that it's, you know, it's impossible. I mean, Jack and a beanstalk is impossible. That's a myth. But, you know, it's, I mean, do Asian Americans have higher levels of educational attainment? I mean, maybe some people have said that's a myth, but it's not impossible. And so I I prefer the term um, conventional wisdom because it, it recognizes that more research needs to be done. About COLA, that is another conventional wisdom that's been going on for decades. But in the last few years, along with the heterogeneity, it's being played up. Just let me jump in for a second. By COLA, you're using cost of living adjustments? Yes, cost of living. That's the abbreviation. just want to make sure our listeners know about that. Right. Cost of living is, is higher, you know, in traditionally calculated in places like uh, New York and, and California and Hawaii and West Coast of uh, of Washington and a lot of Asians uh, live in these areas for decades. People have have noticed this, and um, first of all, let me 
to say that, um, you know, this is uh, an important issue, uh, but uh, I think it's being played up recently along with the heterogeneity in the past few years because what's happening is that the bivariate difference between Asians and whites is widening. Immigration is becoming more socioeconomically centered on people with higher education. And the second generation, which has high education, is moving into the labor force and doing well. And so what we see is that if you look at the bivariate difference between Asians and whites, Asians have moved up and whites have been stagnant. And so what has happened is that it's becoming increasingly obvious that Asians don't fit the majority-minority paradigm the way uh, people have been saying for decades. I mean, decades ago, you could find more Asians in the secondary labor market, but today there are increasingly fewer of them. And so as Asians increasingly have this rising advantage over whites, there's this greater need for academics, at least, to sort of rationalize it away. And in, in terms of the COLA argument, you know, again, because there's a lot of political motivation there, I mean, it's, it's obvious that uh, people choose to live in places um, that they prefer to live in based on the amenities. And so, uh, you know, people dream about taking vacations to San Francisco and to Los Angeles and to Seattle and, and to New York City. I mean, if you can live there, you have the benefit of all of those amenities. I mean, California has the best weather and the best beaches, the world's greatest, you know, state park system. If you talk to Californians, they love their state. And so Asian Americans traditionally were concentrated, at least East Asian Americans were traditionally concentrated there and they grew up in, um, in California. And so, you know, they're, they have a preference for that and they're less likely to move to other places because they prefer at least the, the native born folks from California to, they're more likely to prefer those amenities. Now, Having said that, something that I predicted a few years ago is that we see a rapid spatial assimilation of Asian Americans. Yes, there are those California Hawaiian guys, but uh, what is happening now is we have a new second generation of Asian Americans from the South, from the North Central, from uh, sort of the, the mountain states, where once there were very few Asians. Now we're seeing that Asians in the West Coast are no longer a majority of Asians. And so there is a spatial assimilation that uh, the post-65 immigrants came in and settled in places like the South, and their children now are entering the labor force. And because they didn't grow up in California, they don't have a particular um, preference for that state. And so there's a rapid diversification of Asian Americans. So the entire COLA argument is slowly fading away as Asians uh, spatially assimilate. And by now, at this point, um, Asian American women, um, you know, if you look at their incomes and wages, the COLA factor really doesn't affect conclusions about Asian American women relative to white women. It's more about Asian American men and Specifically, if you look at South Asian Americans, they are not so heavily concentrated in the West Coast. 
through the you know historic immigration patterns. And if you disaggregated Asian Americans and look specific at South Asian Americans, the COLA factor is is not as important. So um, it is something that is you know been traditionally said. People are trying to exaggerate it now, but it, as an empirical factor, it's it's sort of withering away as Asians spatially assimilate. And in general, what we see is actually a, a mobile labor market. I mean, I can go online and look at housing prices and see photographs of you know real estate all over the country just looking at my internet um, connection. So um, people are very savvy now about uh, cost of living and real estate differences. And today with a, a you know, highly mobile, educated workers. I mean, these are national labor markets. And so the entire COLA issue is going to be, uh, uh, I, I think, becoming less significant in the next few years. And, you know, there is additional issues there about, okay, these folks that are in California, I mean, no one's mentioned, well, you know, why is it bad to own property in Los Angeles? Why is that a disadvantage? I mean, my uncle owns a house near Culver City that's worth probably at least a million dollars. And yet he paid a tiny fraction of that decades ago. And there's Proposition 13 in California. His property taxes can't go up as much as the value of the property. I mean, his actual cost of living for people that bought their property earlier uh, actually could be quite low because he bought his real estate uh, at a time when um, before it appreciated greatly. And so if you have a lot of Asians from this area, you know, it's not at all clear that this average COLA differential applies to them. It applies more to new immigrants that are moving there, but Asian American families, um, even native born ones are more likely to pool their money across generations. So they actually have, uh, real estate in these expensive areas. And it's, you know, when we think of it intellectually, I mean, wh what do you mean cost of living? Uh, I mean, if, if you are the poorest person in Beverly Hills, California, because you only make, you know, $300,000, does that mean you're poor? I mean, what is the right unit of analysis when we're talking about cost of living, I mean, that issue hasn't been raised. Not all of California is expensive. Merced County or the Eastern counties, for example, are, are cheaper. And um, so, I mean, this issue is, 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 has a political kind of feel to it and people are, are not sort of seriously uh, looking at it. The, the unit of analysis, uh, the, the preferences for amenities that people have, Right. There's almost an infinite number of ways to compute this sort of thing. I think uh, to play devil's advocate for a second, yeah. one thing people are trying to bring up, and I say devil's advocate because I don't entirely agree with this, is that Asians tend to live in areas where the cost of living is higher, which means their incomes don't go quite as far. That doesn't mean they're disadvantaged, which is why I say I don't agree with the larger point, but the relative advantage is high. Now, what I find problematic about this, which is a little different, is that this cost of living adjustment isn't used when it comes to other ethnic groups. Right. So traditionally, if you're talking about the median income difference between African Americans and whites, you generally don't use that cost of living adjustment, even though 
African Americans tend to be clustered in the South, which has a lower cost of living. Right. So it does seem to be a selective application again. And I feel like, again, when it comes to sociology textbooks, sometimes Asian Americans are invisible. So you don't even start to get into this topic. But when you start to look into papers about median income differences, you see that people will suddenly throw in the cost of living adjustment when it comes to Asian Americans. That's that's a great point. And it and that is sort of, you know, illustrates the ideological aspect when the argument is completely ignored with other groups. Uh, Native Americans are much more likely to live in rural areas. Uh, Latinos are more likely to live in the states bordering Mexico. Cost of living is lower there. Uh, blacks, as you said, are more likely to live in, in the southeast where cost of living can be very low. And, you know, it's all the rage in sociology to talk about how African-Americans are disadvantaged by living in low-income neighborhoods. I mean, there's entire sessions and books written arguing that African-Americans are causally disadvantaged because they live in low-income neighborhoods. Well, logically, why is it that Asian-Americans are disadvantaged by living in high-income neighborhoods? I mean, it's an exact contradiction of what we say for African-Americans. So what you're saying is is, is exactly right. It's used so selectively and then that just shows why it's ideologically motivated. To get to our third point now, I guess it's almost time to wrap up maybe. But to get to the third point we wanted to discuss, it's the point that Asian family incomes are lower than whites, which I think is relevant because we were just talking about this. Asian family incomes are lower than whites because whites have white privilege. And what do you consider problematic about that argument? Well, I'm glad we're running out of time because that is a a bigger discussion. But I think that you know, there's there's a lot to be said about racial differentials in the U.S. and I plan to be working more on this. But sort of the simple and, and, and quick answer is that, you know, the way we think of relations with whites and blacks, you know, shouldn't shape or define or determine necessarily everything that goes on with Asians versus whites. And so I, I guess that's, um, I guess that's accepted by sort of most everyday people. But this pension, as we've been talking about for for sociologists, for trying to pigeonhole Asians into this majority major, uh, minority paradigm, uh, I mean, it doesn't follow necessarily that you know Asians must be disadvantaged as a non-white minority because blacks are are non-whites and are disadvantaged versus whites. So the black-white issue is a bigger discussion, but I think I'll just say that for for Asians from an Asian point of view, I mean, the fact that a Blacks can be disadvantaged versus whites. That in itself does not determine the objective reality for Asians. We should be concerned with this issue of white privilege, but there's is too much trying to follow this narrative or ideological um, perspective that says, well, anything bad with Asians, we're going to exaggerate, and in some cases, be completely false about it. And um, we're not recognizing that, you know, Asians are different from other non-white groups. Now, have you actually seen people claim that white privilege causes Asian incomes to be lower? Well, they, they may not use the term white privilege per se, but they will argue uh, that Asian Americans face discrimination in the labor market because their wages are lower, because uh, there's a a glass ceiling or a bamboo ceiling, as some people call it, or that um, there's, uh, you know, 
disdain or, or, or skepticism or lack of acceptance of Asians. And, you know, I'm I aware that some of that can exist sometime, but as an overall pattern, um, you know, the data don't generally support that. And uh, sort of the commitment that a lot of sociologists have, and I invite you to read the textbooks on this, that Asians are disadvantaged. I mean, that sort of is an implicit way of saying there's white privilege, although they may not use that particular phrase per se. Right. I haven't myself seen that either. I've seen some evidence for the bamboo ceiling. I haven't looked at it in close detail. It does seem like there might be some truth to that. It's hard to know what the cause of that is, whether it's racism or whether it's Asians tend to have certain qualifications, but not others, which means they don't have the right qualifications to be promoted to management positions as easily. Have you seen anything um, that sheds more light on that? That's a good issue. And, and that, you know, gets me back to why, you know, I, I prefer you know, talking about conventional wisdoms rather than myths, because it, it's easy to say these things. But actually, uh, the research on Asian Americans, um, you know, is inadequate for the most part, to be making strong generalizations uh, in, in many realms. And in terms of managerial attainment, I mean, the census categories are so broad. I mean, if you're running a convenience store or an ethnic restaurant, you're a manager. But uh, And Asians do fine in that. But if you actually ask people, how many people do you supervise directly? There was a survey about... Um, 15 years ago that I, I analyzed and um, it, I, I found that Asians report anyway that they supervised about 8% fewer people than whites did even when they had the same business background in terms of their field of study. And so uh, controlling for age and, and region and other uh, aspects that may affect, well, I'm not sure if we control for region, but other aspects that may affect managerial attainment, there was a disadvantage for Asians. Now, interestingly, the more recent data does not find that. And so as the second generation, you know, is, is aging and getting um, more accepted into the workforce, that, that may be, um, I mean, we, that's just two surveys, but it may be that it's changing now. The other thing that's interesting about that is that I studied all the groups in those in those papers, and both of the papers find that uh, African Americans and Hispanics were advantaged over whites in, in terms of supervisory power. That for the same level of educational and uh, business background, uh, blacks and Hispanics actually um, had greater managerial authority or at least reported that they did compared to equivalent whites. And those results, to my knowledge, had never once been cited anywhere. Whereas the one study where I found Asians uh, had a negative effect, that's, that's been cited quite a bit. But you know, if you read the next page, it says, well, blacks are doing better. That's never cited. So my same paper is only known as the paper that found disadvantage for Asians. It's never once been cited as a paper that found advantage for Blacks. That's interesting. Well, maybe over the next few years, we'll see more citations of that. Anyway, I'd love to talk further about all of this. It's not often that I get to talk to someone who knows a lot about Asian American sociology. As we've said, they tend to be invisible. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much. It's uh, always a pleasure. And uh, I always uh, like being able to talk about Asian Americans. Thank you again for having me on.
If you'd like to find some of Arthur's papers, you can find most of them at academia.edu under Arthur Sakamoto's profile. You can also find them on his Google Scholar profile. The first paper that shows up on his Google Scholar profile, Socioeconomic Attainments of Asian Americans, is a good place to start. On future episodes of this show, I'll be having Zachary Wood and Fabio Rojas on as guests. Zachary Wood is author of Uncensored, My Life and Uncomfortable Conversations at the Intersection of Black and White America, which comes out later this year. And Fabio Rojas is sociologist at Indiana University and creator of the prominent sociology blog, Org Theory. Thanks for listening. Thank you.